everybody, and welcome back to the show. You're listening to Season 2, and oh my god, this is Episode 11, and this is the history of religions and their gods. And I am your host, I am the skeptical ghost heathen, and I am an ancient history enthusiast, as well as a hobbyist of ancient religions and their origins. Today is May 7th, 2021, and this episode is simply entitled, Cosmic Jesus and the Brothers of the Lord Cult. (laughs) So, in this episode, we're basically going to conclude with our evidence calling for a cosmic Jesus versus an earthly historical one by examining the scriptures and then review the arguments to see how they measure up as well, supporting or denying. But thank you for listening, and please share with a friend if you think they might also enjoy this show as well and help spread the love. And if you give me an hour, baby, I will give you the history of the world and so much more. So if you're ready for this excellent adventure to begin, hop in or tune in and let's go. Just as Jesus' death cannot be placed on earth using anything that Paul actually said or ever wrote, neither can his suffering, which likewise would have occurred at the hands of the same demons who killed him, nor his humbleness or his love, which were likewise displayed by his obedience to God's plan in the heavens, allowing himself to suffer abuse and to be killed there, nor his having been a man, Since, as we saw in the Philippians Gospel, in order to die, Jesus had to be clothed in human skin, in a human body. Which is exactly the same that we found in the ascension of Isaiah, that originally placed in outer space as well. So when Paul says we ought to imitate Christ's endurance of abuse, for example, as he writes to 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, as well as 1 Thessalonians 1.6, we have nothing that anchors this to an earthly event whatsoever. Now, for example, Paul's reference to Jesus being a man. According to Paul's logic, sin entered the world through one man, and that would be Adam. Therefore, sin had to be removed and extracted from the world through another man, Jesus Christ. And as sin entered through one man's disobedience, it had to be removed through another man's obedience. Romans 5, 12-21 Now, this all conforms to minimal mythicism and therefore is no more likely to have been said on minimal historicity. Now, indeed, Paul qualifies this logic elsewhere, saying in Philippians 2.7, that was not actually a man, but came in the likeliness of men, and was found in the form like a man. And then in Romans 8.3, that he was only sent in the likeliness of sinful flesh. This is the doctrine of pre-existent being, assuming a human body, but not a being that was fully transformed into a man just looking like one, so that he can be abused, having flesh and a blood body to be abused and killed. Now, Christ's obedience 
And of course, his love for us is simply represented in Paul, not by a biography full of examples, but by the single instance of allowing himself to be clothed in a human body, and then abused, and then ultimately killed. He represents this to us in Romans 5, verse 19. He says it to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, and also in Romans 15, verse 3, as well as to the Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20. This is also what is referred to when Paul says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for you he became poor. So that through his poverty you might become rich. He says this to, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Now, obviously, Paul is not saying Jesus was a wealthy man and gave all of his money in, away and, you know, in poverty away, any more than he is saying that Christians now would all get rich. Rather, what he is saying, he's referring to the fact that Jesus was the supreme being, yet rather than claim his power, he lowered himself down temporarily, divesting himself in all of his potency his supernatural riches, exactly as he says in Philippians 2, verses 6-8. Now, on the other hand, when Paul begs the Corinthians by the mindless and kindness of Christ, not to force him to be mean to them, he's actually referring to Christ's current gentleness as a judge, in parallel what Paul is implying he will be too, when he arrives personally. We get this in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 2. The words he uses are, in Greek, it's prautis, and the other word is epikia. So the first word, just so you can look it up, is spelled P-R-A-U-T-E-S. And the second word is E-P-E-I-K-E-I-A, which means mindless, gentleness, and reasonableness, fairness. Respectively, their antonyms are, and the words that he uses, hagriotis in Greek, which is basically savage, savageness and cruelty. And the other word is, in Greek, anapikia, which is A-N-E-P-I-E-I-K-E-I-A, which means simply being unreasonable and unfair. So in the context of 2 Corinthians 10, Paul is therefore referring to not any past event in Jesus' life, but to Jesus' present character as a kind and fair judge at the right hand of God, as opposed to being a savage, cruel, and reasonable, and unfair one. Now likewise, when Paul says we always carry about in the body of dying Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may show in our body too, as in 2 Corinthians 4, 10-11, he means Jesus' current life as a resurrected Savior, not some biographical life that once lived a long time ago. Paul is saying that by dying to the world, he or we display to the world the living Spirit of Christ in us. Now, in the same way, when Paul tells us, although we have known Christ according to the flesh, now we no longer know him that way, as seen in 2 Corinthians 5.16. He is not excusing the fact that he did not know Jesus personally as the other apostles did, because he is not referring to himself, but to all Christians, including the Corinthians, that he is writing to in this particular instance, as in the context indicates in 2 Corinthians 5. 1 through 15. 
This is therefore a reference to our living, no longer according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, as seen in Romans 8. So it is not Christ's fleshly existence Paul is referring to here, because even on historicity, the Corinthians can't possibly have known Christ that way at all. But our fleshly existence and our choice to live in the flesh or out of it, and the fact that Christians begin in it and ultimately ascend out of it, this way we all know Christ when we are in the flesh. But then we evolve beyond that. As Paul says in the very next line in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Now sometimes it's actually claimed that Paul refers to Jesus having had a ministry that was among the Jews when he said, Christ has been made a deacon of circumcision for the sake of God's honesty in order to confirm his promise to the patriarchs. And he says this in Romans 15, verse 8. But all Paul is saying here is that Jesus had to be given a Jewish body, formed from who? It's the sperm of David. And appear first to the Jews to fulfill the scripture, as Paul is reading all this. And he needs to make sure that he's staying consistent with what the scripture said. So that's invention right? That does not entail an earthly ministry whatsoever. In fact, the word deacon, which is sometimes translated as minister, as in preacher, actually means servant or attendant, someone who does another's will. As such, it can mean someone's messenger or temple attendant, for that matter. But it does not refer to having a ministry, and in the sense of historicist would require. It means, in this particular context, doing God's will, as Scripture says. It can mean doing God's will by replaying God's will. As such, it can refer to as having a ministry in an indirect sense, but as it is, would equally apply to revealing God's will from heaven. This passage is therefore, once again, ambiguous. It can pull to one side or to the other, but when you're looking at the Greek translation and the words that were carefully chosen, one could absolutely pull to more of the celestial side, where apologists might be able to say, no, that's really pulling to a historical side. But again, when you balance it out, and if it's only 1% of this vague comments, it might assume that it is historical. It's just very small and unexpected. It cannot be confidently anchored to an earthly event, is what I'm saying. To the contrary, as we saw in Romans 10, verses 14 through 17, Paul appears to say Jesus had no historical ministry of the, of, of the kind. Now, the same goes for everything else that we find inside of Paul's letters. Paul mentions there having been a group even called the Twelve, as we've seen this in 1 Corinthians 15, 5. But he does not ever once call them disciples or say anything about them having been chosen by Jesus before his death. Paul likewise says God put in Zion a stone of stumbling, although anyone who trusts in it will not be ashamed. He says this in Romans 9.33. But he is once again quoting directly from scripture, not historical facts. And the context is the Torah and the gospel as seen in Romans 9, 30-32, not Jesus. Thus, in this case, Paul does not mean Jesus was crucified in Zion as some sort of geographical fact. Even if Paul believed he had been, 
That is not what Paul is talking about here. The subject is not about Jesus at all, as a matter of fact, but the old Torah law that Jews were still trying to hold on to and to obey. Yet they could never succeed, as seen in Romans 9, 30 through 10, 6. They are therefore stumbling over the gospel's concepts that faith succeeded, where folks fail, as seen in 9.32, as God intended, as seen in 9.33. But it was still Paul's hope that the Jews would be saved, Romans 10.1. It is therefore the gospels that originated in Zion, and that it is not geography, but ethnography, ethnography, excuse me. He simply means it originated in Judaism. Now, more importantly, just like we saw previously in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 14, in Romans 13, Paul appears to have knowledge of the fact that Jesus was unjustly executed by earthly authorities. But for here, Paul insists repeatedly that all earthly authorities are chosen by God and only serve justice. Those in power, and the word that he uses is archontes, A-R-C-H-O-N-T-E-S, are not a terror to good work, but to evil. He says this in Romans 13.3, as they only visit God's wrath on the unjust. 13.4. So this seems as an impossible thing to say for someone who believed in Pilate and the Sanhedrin that had conspired to kill Jesus without honest cause. Such a notion could not have existed at all in Paul's time. Otherwise, the Christians he is writing to would have balked at it. If the authorities only wield the sword against the evil and unjust in 13, 3-5, then Christ must have been evil and unjust then, right? As the later is impossible, yet Paul asserts the former. It cannot have been believed at this time that Jesus was killed by an earthly authority. This passage in Romans is therefore highly improbable on minimal historicity, but exactly what one should expect on minimal mythicism. Now, similarly, in Galatians 3.1, where Paul says, O oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was foretold as crucified? He is absolutely referring to scripture here once again. And the Greek word that is used is proagraphy, P-R-O-E-G-R-A-P-H-E, which simply means written beforehand, hence foretold. And the fact that they had seen the relevant passages with their own eyes. So what Paul is doing here, he's chastising the Galatians for forgetting that Jesus was crucified and that this canceled out the old Torah law in 2, 17-21. So, Paul here conspicuously doesn't say, There were eyewitnesses to his death. Some are still alive today. So why would you doubt it? Or everyone knows by report told so far and wide that Pilate crucified Jesus and had confirmed that he had died on the cross. Or perhaps even, Or the Romans and the Jewish authorities both testify that, Yep, they crucified Christ and they took him down from the cross dead or any countless of other things similar to that. No, the only evidence Paul has to offer the Galatians is that scripture says Christ was crucified. That is the only evidence anyone's eyes had seen. 
At most, we might think he means the supernatural effects of his death were known from Scripture, but that is not what he says. He says the Messiah's crucifixion was known from Scripture. So here again, at best, we do not find any support for historicity. In fact, just the opposite. And that's it. That's all Paul ever says about Jesus' deeds and life that could possibly have any link to a historical man. Paul says he was incarnated, suffered, crucified, died, and buried, and spoke about a ritual meal on the night that it happened, and that he is humble, fair, and loving, all of which can be true to a cosmically incarnated Jesus. Now, as far as Paul seems to care, there were no miracles, no ministries, no trial whatsoever, no names, no dates, no places, or any details at all of anyone or any place involved in that narrative. And quite simply, nothing anyone I witnessed before his death. That is all very odd from a historicist standpoint, which means it's very improbable, unless, of course, we're talking about mythicism like Romulus or Osiris. Then it all makes perfect sense to us. Now, perhaps we shouldn't trouble ourselves so much over the complete absence of earthly deeds in Paul's conception of his Jesus, since on a minimal historicity, it is possible that Jesus actually did nothing at all, enough for Paul to even write about on any occasion. We've otherwise already examined the problem of the weird absence of any debate or curiosity over the historical details surrounding the death of Jesus, or his character, or we might now add, where his body is, and where it lays, and where it had lain, and whether it should have been venerated or was of any interest to anyone to even go and visit. Nobody says anything about it. Or how an earthly man, much less an executed convict, could be the celestial being Paul expects Christian to, Christians to emulate and to worship. On that last point alone, Jesus' deeds seem an impossible thing to leave out of his accounts. How or how could anyone actually kill him be inconsequential? How could Paul write thousands of words, 20,000 words, never once having to combat the polemics or the apologetics of Jewish elite, who were supposedly blamed for killing the Messiah and the zealously campaigning against the Christian heresy? How could none of Jesus' earthly deeds, nor any of the particulars of them, even be used as arguments or examples or even questioned? We got nothing. We can excuse the absence of any one or two of these things, perhaps, but all of them? So the problem here, the probability that none would come up in any manner at all, clearly locating them in the earth history, is certainly not 100%, as if we expected every specific historical fact about Jesus to be completely ignored by Paul and by all of their congregations and opponents. Indeed, as if we expected this with such certainty that it would be surprising if he mentioned it even once. No, it's quite the other way around. The probability of this must be less than 100%. Whereas, this silence is essentially 100% expected on mythicism. Once again, we might expect more references to have been made to the events of Jesus' life transpiring in outer space. But we also expect such references to be lost or expunged. So, 
So, so their absence is not unexpected. If Paul ever wrote a letter on such things, that is precisely the letter that we should expect to not have survived. So now I'll take a look at that scale again from everything that we've just explored and analyzed. That scale on the side of a mythical Jesus, cosmic Christ, is really, really heavy. It's really strong. And there are those vague little comments where if you squint your eyes and do some mental gymnastics, one could assume that he was talking about a historical person dealing with historical events and people. But there's so much missing. Where are the arguments about Jesus' life and his experience and his deeds? In contrary to all the other factions that were happening at the same time, there were also, also generating questions and pushback. Where is all of this? It's absolutely missing. Now, there are only two remaining pieces of evidence that historicists cling to as evidence Paul and his Christians knew of a historical Jesus. And this comes in some vague reference to his parentage and mentions of their being brothers of the Lord. The brothers of the Lord cult, right? So I shall begin with the matter of parentage, on which there are two pertinent verses that Paul uses. One could be related to Jesus' father and the other to his mother. So Jesus' father is actually never named or even mentioned by Paul let alone his hometown or genealogy or anything else that would be distinctive like an actual human being or an actual man. But as noted before in Romans 1.3, Paul says Jesus was made from the sperm of David and according to the flesh. In contradistinction to Jesus being declared the Son of God in power according to the Spirit. In the one case referencing to his incarnation in Philippians 2 verse 5. In the other, his resurrection in Philippians 2, verses 9. Then likewise in Hebrews 7, verses 11 through 17, says scripture foretold that Christ would arise from the tribe of Judah. So he's, he's, he's got to fulfill this narrative. And in Romans 15, 12 says scripture foretold that Christ would be the root of Jesse, the father who sired King David, of course. The same is implied in Romans 9.5 as well as 15.8. These all hinge on what it means to be made from the sperm of David and according to the flesh, since all these reference that same fact. It's an allegorical meaning that is possible here. So, But it's also a literal one, even on the minimal side of mythicism. Philippians 2 verses 6-11 actually portrays this fact as an act of divine construction, not human procreation. Jesus took human form. Jesus was made to look like a man, and then Jesus was found to be resembling one. See in Hebrews 2, verses 17. There's no mention of birth, childhood, or parents. In Romans 1, 3, just as in Galatians 4, 4, Paul uses the Greek word genomenos. G-E-N-O-M-E-N-O-S, literally meaning to happen or to become. It's quite different. Paul never once uses the word of a human birth, despite using it hundreds of times in his 20,000 words, typically to mean being or becoming. Rather, his preferred word for being born is geneo, G-E-N-N-A-O. 
O. So preferably, as found in 1 Corinthians 15.45, Paul says Adam, remember Adam and Eve, was made using the same exact word that he uses for Jesus. Yet, this is obviously not reference to being born, but to being constructed directly by God. So if for Adam, then so it could be for Jesus as well, right? Happening in the celestial universe, the celestial realms above the world, whom Paul equates with Adam in that same exact verse. Now, likewise, in 1 Corinthians 15.37, Paul actually uses the same word for future resurrection body, which, of course, is not born of a parent, but directly manufactured by God and already waiting for us in heaven, as seen in 2 Corinthians 15.1-5. So with this, Paul could be saying the same thing for Jesus' incarnation. Now, Scripture said that the prophet Nathan was instructed by God to tell King David, and here's the following piece from the Septuagint translation, although Hebrews does not substantially differ that much. So in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 14, and I begin the quote, When your days are done and you sleep with your fathers, I will rise up your sperm after you, which shall come from your belly, which is biologically incorrect, especially since this is, you know, influenced by God and all. But anyway, and I will establish his kingdom. He will find for me a house in my name, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son, end quotation. Now, if this passage were read like a pesher, which is basically a series of interpretations um, from Scripture, one could easily conclude that God was saying he extracted the semen from David's belly and held it in reserve until the time that you know, he would make good of his promise of David's progeny sitting on an internal throne. For otherwise, God's promise was broken. The throne of David's progeny was not eternal. Moreover, the original poetic intent was certainly to speak of an unending royal line, right? And not just biologically, but politically. It is the throne that would be eternal. Yet history proves that this was not. The line of David was broken a few times. Yet God can be read to say here that he would rise up a single son for David who will rule Israel, you know, eternally, forever, rather than a royal line. And that, and that his will be the kingdom God establishes, and he will build God's house, which is what? Referring to the Christian church. And thus he will be one to sit up upon the throne forever, and this man will be the Son of God. In other words, Jesus Christ. The same kind of inference that Paul makes in Galatians 3.13 as well as 4.29, where he infers Jesus is also the seed of Abraham, also spoken in Scripture. It would not be unimaginable that God could maintain a cosmic sperm bank up in heaven. After all, God's power was absolute, and all sorts of things could be stored up there, right? Even our own future bodies, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1-5. through 5. And then in later Jewish legend and mythology, they imagine demons running their own cosmic sperm banks, even stealing David's sperm from it to beget his enemies with. 
So surely God could be imagined doing the same exact thing. When the prophecy of Nathan is read in conjunction with subsequent history, this would be the most plausible way to rescue God's prophecy. And that is exactly how Paul did it, is to rescue God's prophecy. God could not have been speaking of David's hereditary line. No one ever established or sat on an eternal throne. So he must have been speaking of a special son who will be born of David's sperm in the future using the sperm that God took up from his belly when David still lived. For the prophecy does not say God will set up an eternal throne for one born of the sperm from a subsequent heir's belly, but from the sperm of David's own belly. Now, the notion of a cosmic sperm bank is easily read from out of this scripture. And it is all but required by the outcome of the subsequent history that it is not improbable to assume this. This is not an improbable assumption at all. And since scripture, Old Testament scripture, required this Messiah to be Davidic or of David's seed, to fulfill that particular narrative of the Davidic seed owning the throne of, of, uh, of Israel, Anyone who started with the cosmic doctrine inherent in minimal mythicism would have had to imagine something exactly of this kind, that Jesus would be made from the sperm of David. It's therefore but entailed by mythicism. And Paul also never names Jesus' mother and only mentions Jesus having a mother in a strange, vague passage, a chapter where Paul otherwise speaks of mothers being allegorical. He says nothing about Jesus' mother otherwise. And the passage in question reads like this. If you are Christ, then you, like him, are the sperm of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. And I say that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from that of a slave. Even though he is Lord of all, he is under guardians and stewards until the day the Father had ordained. And so we too were enslaved under the elements of the universe when we were children. But when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, in quotations, made from a woman, made under the law, in order to rescue those under the law, in order that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his sons into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. As a result, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then also an heir by God. So Paul asks, why are you returning to the elements that had enslaved you, whom you know aren't really gods? Remember how things were when we met. Why resubject yourself to the Torah law all over again? So it is written that Abraham had two sons. And if you recall, one was from a slave woman and one was from a free woman. But the one from the slave woman was born according to the flesh. And the one from the free woman by the promise which things are said allegorically, for these women are two testaments, the first one being from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to slavery. That's Hagar, Hagar meaning Mount Sinai in Arabia, which corresponds to Jerusalem now, for she is enslaved with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, 
and she is our mother, as scripture says. So now, my brothers, we are children of the promise, like Isaac, the son of the free woman, for example, Sarah. But as in those days, one born according to the flesh, for example, Ishmael, persecuted the one according to the spirit, for example, Isaac. So it, it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave girl and her son, for the son of the slave girl would not be the heir of the son of the free woman. This is in Genesis 21, verse 10. And then accordingly, my brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free one. For freedom did Christ set us free. So don't go back being a slave of the elements or that of the Torah, the old way of the Old Testament as seen in Galatians 3.29, as well as 4.7, and 4.22, as well as 5.1. So, anyway, so it's clear that Paul is speaking from the beginning to the end about being born to allegorical women, not literal women. The theme throughout is that Christians are the heirs of the promise to Abraham, and such as have been born to the allegorical Sarah the free woman, which is the Jerusalem above, meaning the heavenly city of God. So Jesus was momentarily born to the allegorical Hagar, the slave woman, which is the Torah law of the Old Testament, which holds sway in the earthly Jerusalem, so that he could kill off that law with his own death, making it possible for us to be born of Sarah, the free woman at last. This is what Paul means when he says Jesus was made under the law. And from a woman, he means Hagar, representing the old law. But we now, or like Jesus now, have a new mother, God's heavenly kingdom. Now, because this chapter constitutes a single continuous argument, it's clear from the fact that it began speaking about the same themes it ends with. Our previous slavery to the Torah law, our being children of the promise made to Abraham, and then born from Abraham allegorically, and out of being now the children of Abraham's free wife, Sarah, again allegorical, and thus the heirs of that original promise, and so no longer enslaved to the Old Testament law. This is how Paul starts the chapter and ends with the chapter, and everything in between leads logically from one to the other. In the process that Paul parallels our being under the sway of the elements, the elemental spirits, with Jesus being put under the sway of the law, so we could be rescued from being under the sway of that law, the Torah, and thus the elemental spirits. It's all allegorical. He's making a point of being underneath the Torah, the old law. That's why Paul says God sent his son, thus a pre-existing being, and made him, again using the word genomenos, from a woman, just as we're born from a woman, either the slave woman or the free woman, but either way, not a literal woman. And so for us, so for Jesus, and vice versa. Now, it's obvious that what Paul meant by born of a woman and born under the law, what he means here is that Jesus was being incarnated, placed under the sway of the old covenant, 
so that he could die to it and rise free, as shall we. So the woman here is simply the old covenant. It's allegorical, not an actual person. Paul does not mean a biological birth to a Mary or any other Jewess, for that matter. Indeed, that would make very little sense here, other than to reflect his upcoming allegorical point that he wants to make. Why would Paul mention Jesus having a mother here at all? What purpose would it serve in any of his arguments that he's trying to make? It cannot be that this made Jesus a Jew. As an antiquity, that fact would have been established by patrimony or in circumcision, as seen in Exodus 12, 48. Not the identity of his mother, except for mixed marriages, of course, which cannot have been the circumstance of Jesus, much less than what Paul had in mind. If he was implying Jesus did not have a Jewish father... As we have seen, Paul already says, even in his very argument to the Galatians in 3.16, that Jesus is the seed of Abraham and David. If all he wanted to establish was that Jesus was a Jew, that would have sufficed. Indeed, Paul cannot be citing Jesus' birth to a woman to establish that he was a Jew, for he does not even specify this woman was even Jewish. She is simply a woman. That isn't even specific enough to certainly mean a human woman. Gods, angels, spirits, and demons could all be women and giving birth in some celestial realms. Now, even if we just assume that he meant a woman that was human, that would already be a very odd thing to say of a historical man. After all, aren't all men born, of, born to a woman? So what woman does Paul mean here? Why even mention her at all? And why mention her only in such an abstract and bizarre way as simply a generic woman? The only reasonable answer is Paul himself gives us in the completion of his argument he is talking about allegorical women, hence the generic term a woman, and the paralleled concepts of being born enslaved to the law and being born free. And the whole point of even mentioning this detail about Jesus in the first place, it doesn't make sense. The assumption that he means Jesus had a human mother simply does not make sense in the text that we have it at all. So Paul's reference to Jesus being made, remember the Greek word genomenos, of the seed of David and being made from a woman are essentially expected on minimal mythicism in a celestial Jesus and does not argue against it. In fact, because Christians were aware of the distinction between Paul saying made rather than born, it is actually proved by orthodox attempts to make the change where they change one to the other in later edits. And in fact, we know many Christians did conceive of these things celestially. In fact, Irenaeus, the church father, documents, his, documents this extensively in his first book, Against All Heresies, where we learned of celestial seeds impregnating celestial wombs of celestial women. He says this over and over and over again. And of Jesus being fully understood as have been born to a woman of exactly that sort of thing. Irenaeus also documents how these same Christians saw the Gospels as allegories and not histories. Irenaeus himself assumes the Gospels are histories, of course, but does not look like they did. 
And just for your knowledge, Irenaeus was actually a Greek bishop known for um, expanding the Christian movement um, throughout basically what is now today of south of France. But um, born around 130 CE and died somewhere around 202 CE. And he is also very instrumental in condemning, you know, the heretical Christian works that were happening around the first and second, well, I guess around the second century. And there was a lot of that that we'll talk about as well. But he was really instrumental in um, taking a lot of those works and having those works burned and condemning them and, you know, condemning them to, you know, heresy. So then it begs to question, how many other Christian sects had thought the same thing, felt the same way, understood the same ideologies, and how many of their ideas date back all the way to the beginning? Remember, just like Paul, 40s, 50s, 60s, somewhere around there, we have no way to be sure the answer is none. All of the sects Irenaeus speaks about are late and evolved as orthodoxy. In fact, Irenaeus was defending against them and thus all divergent from the original sect of Christianity. But they may have retained some small kernels of the original faith that Irenaeus' sect had abandoned or perhaps even suppressed. So the question is, which kernels are the more original and which are later inventions? So we cannot answer this from the armchair as Irenaeus did, and certainly not with his precious apologetical methods and biases. Instead, if we start with minimal mythicism of the celestial Jesus, we can easily predict the original kernels to most likely have been that Jesus was indeed made from celestial sperm that God snatched from the belly of David, by which God could fulfill his promise to David against the appearance of history having broken it, right? Because it didn't happen. So they tried to make Jesus fulfill that narrative, right? Because that's what scripture said, but you understand. But because this is what we read in Paul, therefore leaves us with no evidence that Paul definitely meant anything else by it. As for Jesus having a mother, Paul never says any such thing. He only speaks of women in an allegory context that even the earliest of Christians understood. Now, just as in minimal mythicism, practically entails that the celestial Christ would be understood to have been formed from the sperm of David. Even literally, God having saved just a little bit for this particular purpose, then using it as the seed from which he formed Jesus' body of flesh, his, his flesh suit, just as he had done for Adam's. And the same follows for Paul saying that Jesus was made from a woman, made under the law. We looked at how even in that context that reads as an allegorical statement and not a literal one. And we can be certain that's how Paul meant it to be as well. And given that the context of the whole chapter, which says, and the preceding chapter as well, where Paul repeatedly talks about the law as a cosmic force and not a biological inheritance, and about assuming identities allegorically, not literally. But since all this is not commonly accepted, we have to look at the text without the presuppositions of historicity that all previous scholars had done. So let's tabulate the two features in their reference of Jesus being made from the seed of David and made from a woman separately. 
Now, the last piece of evidence that Christian apologists try to appeal to for the historicity of Jesus is the only actual evidence that they have is that twice Paul mentions brothers of the Lord, once as a generic group, as in 1 Corinthians 9.5, and once naming a specific person belonging to it, James, as in Galatians 1.19. So the first of these appear where Paul argues as the following, and I'm going to run a quote here. This is from the 1 Corinthians quote. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, at least I am to you. For you are my seal of apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who are putting me on trial is this. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along with us a sister as a wife, as the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas do? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to give up working for our keep? End quote. Now, you've got to notice that this passage is strangely out of place, because the argument Paul is answering has been lost. Whatever charge he is defending against himself in 9.3, it would have been explained in the preceding verses. But in fact, in the present letters, those verses are on a different and largely unrelated controversy, as seen in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 13. And then this subject abruptly and inexplicably changes. Like other epistles in 1 Corinthians, seems to be a mishmash of several different letters, again, all taped together. This being an example where two were mashed together into one. And here the preceding part of whatever letter this came from was left out. And that's a curious fact on its own. Nevertheless, from what Paul does go on to say, we can definitely tell that he was being accused of something. He's being accused of being a moocher, or threatening to be. So he's basically arguing with the Corinthians here that... They're basically saying he wasn't, you know, earning us keep. And he's just like lying around and eating the Corinthians out of their house and homes. And Barnabas too, apparently. And evidently a wife in their company. Most likely the wife of Barnabas, as Paul elsewhere implies he did not marry. You can look up 1 Corinthians 7, verses 7 through 8. But Paul seems to think every traveling minister was allowed to take his wife with him to be fed by the community along with him at least if she was a believer, a sister of the Lord, right? So in Paul's defense is that every other traveling minister was in fact allowed to do that. That is, to do no other's work but minister, the congregations, and in return be fed by the congregation and their expense. He goes on to cite scripture and commandments from Jesus, received by revelation and or his hallucinations, and other arguments in defense of this particular principle. But his first argument is to cite the fact that Paul and Barnabas are being singled out unfairly, that since everyone else got to do it, how come they don't? Now, it's also important to note this context here, because Paul is not talking about the right to be married or to have wives. He is only talking about the right to bring one with him when he travels and expects the community to feed her, and not to expect her or him to have to work beyond whatever church business they are traveling there for. And so here is therefore 
only talking about Christians who were traveling on church business, which would have included not just apostles, those who have received revelations of the Lord, of course, their primary qualifications he opens with, and thus who were sent by the Lord himself to minister to, but Christians of other ranks and duties as well, those sent by human authorities to deliver letters or conduct inner church business. So when Paul says the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas gets to take wives with them on church business without having to work for their keep, he is not singling out the family of Jesus as some sort of specially privileged group never elsewhere mentioned in Paul's letters, not even when he lists the ranks of people in the church. Remember, we went through that in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, where surely we, he would have mentioned it if the family of Jesus was being given special privilege and authority over the church. But instead, Paul is talking about other Christians who were all brothers of the Lord. This is evident from the fact that Paul is unaware of any need here to distinguish biological from adoptive brothers, since all baptized Christians were, in fact, brothers of the Lord, and all Christians knew this. Paul would need to be more specific when using this kind of phrase of actual biological king, right? Indeed, such a distinction would probably have been become a standard practice, such as by saying, brothers of the Lord in the flesh. And moreover, since other Christians besides apostles must have been in the position Paul has in mind of traveling on church business and therefore in need of being fed. We should expect him to have included them in this particular type of example. Yet they are conspicuously absent if we assume he is only talking about Jesus' kin. It must also be noted that Paul does not say here, or anywhere for that matter, brothers of Jesus. But what we get is brothers of the Lord, which can only be a cultic title. Come on in. Welcome to the brothers of the Lord cult. One does not become the brother of the Lord until the person in question is actually hailed the Lord. Thus the phrase, brother of the Lord. It is a creation of Christian ideology. Yes, one might have earned this cultic title by actually being the brother of Jesus, but as the sample evidence shows us, one must also have earned it by simply being baptized as a Christian. Indeed, Paul seems quite certain that one could not have any special privilege from biological relation, because apart from what tasks God has assigned to you to perform in the church, in 1 Corinthians 12.28, all Christians are equal as Paul says in Galatians 3, 26-29, where he even specifically argues that we are all equally related as sons of that same family, the brothers of the Lord cult. Now, I think it's also really interesting to point out here, and I'll kind of wrap this thing up here, is that only Christians who had obtained the highest level of initiation were allowed to be referred to with the complete phrase, brothers of the Lord. This would match exactly what Clement of Alexandria reports, that Christians achieving the highest level of initiation were alone fully heirs, and thus fully the sons of God, and so just as fully the brothers of the Son of God. Since this is just as likely, or just as unlikely, even the possibility that the phrase brothers of the Lord 
was policed by the church only to mean biological kin is then washed out. By the equal possibility, it was policed to mean only apostles of the supreme rank. As either it is likely on prior considerations, neither one will prevail. And each still more than likely than both, that the brothers of the Lord simply is what Christians commonly called themselves before they acquired the name Christians, an appellation that Paul shows no knowledge of. The use of the complete phrase would then not be necessary other than occasionally for the emphasis. For example, Paul repeatedly speaks of Christians as being the brethren, because everyone understood that was shorthand for brethren of the Lord. So what this boils down to is, brother of the Lord simply means Christians, right? It's the simplest hypothesis. It requires the fewest ad hoc assumptions. Thus, Holcomb's razor. And also in evidence, we know that all Christians in Paul's time, through baptism, deemed themselves as brothers of the Lord in a very cultic fashion. Not one time in all of Paul's letters, in all 20,000 words, does he ever say or imply that this phrase means only biological brothers or apostles of supreme rank. For that matter, unless that's implied by the sequence in 1 Corinthians 9.5, if that sequence is supposed to indicate ascending rank apostles, supreme apostles, and supremest apostles, etc., such as Cephas, I guess, there being apostles of higher rank could also imply by the twelve, as in 1 Corinthians 15.5, or the pillars in Galatians 2.9. Could these higher-ranked apostles be the biological brothers of Jesus? One would sooner think that by the higher-ranked apostles would be the disciples, a group once again notably completely absent here. More evidence is that Paul knew of no such group, or as just noted, the pillars of the twelve, which were in no account the family of Jesus. So Paul's argument here to the Corinthians would absolutely make no sense if he was talking about the family of Jesus. But it makes perfect sense if he was talking about Christians as a whole, and especially Christians of lower ranks than himself, lower ranks than apostles. Against this conclusion, historicist Christian apologetics can refer only to the evidence outside of the epistles. But that does not support them. The Gospels, as we will see, do conceive brothers for Jesus, and even names them as well, but then essentially declare that Jesus denounced them. The author of the Gospels shows no knowledge of these brothers even having been believers, much less apostles, even less privileged ones, except for Luke, who alone imagines them in the first congregation, as you'll see in Acts 1, but then shows no knowledge of them ever doing anything, much less being an apostle, even less apostles of special status. For none of them appear anywhere in the Acts record of the church's public history. That they don't exist in the earliest recorded history of the church argues for the conclusion that they didn't exist altogether. It certainly does not argue for the opposite conclusion, does it? That they were, re that they were recognized as privileged group in the church leadership? No brothers of Jesus are found anywhere else in the New Testament. Nowhere. Not even letters with their names on them with making such a claim. 
And when it comes to evidence outside the New Testament, as we shall see how ridiculous and how unreliable it really is, and exactly to the point that we will survey when we take a look at all four Gospels and the chapters to come or the episodes to come. So Paul is surely just referring to non-apostolic Christians here in 1 Corinthians 9.5, and not to the family of Jesus. But what about this other one reference to this category, to the, to the Galatians that he writes, and that's in 1.15-22. And the quote goes, When it was the good pleasure of the God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not confer with flesh and blood right away, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those that were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia, and again I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to consult with Cephas, and I stayed with him for fifteen days. But I did not see any of the other apostles, except for James, the brother of the Lord." and took these things I'm writing to you by God. I'm not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cecilia, and I was still unknown by the face of the congregations of Judea that were in Christ. End quotation. So here it is believed that this is another fictive kinship title, not a reference to James literally being the brother of Christ. We've already seen how Paul can use the phrase brothers of the Lord, to mean Christians, since all Christians were in fact considered brothers of the Lord. And so why would Paul have needed to be more specific if he meant brother of the Lord by birth and not adoption? So here he may be simply saying the same thing, that James was a fellow brother in Christ. Indeed, Paul does go on to say that this James, unless he means a different one, of course, was one of the three pillars of the highest repute in the church, James and Cephas and John, as he tells us in Galatians 2.9. And in fact, even in the four canonical gospels, they imagine these three as disciples, not the family of Jesus. In fact, the gospels uniformly report that this James and this John were actually brothers of each other, not of Jesus. Maybe Paul knew them the same way too. Now certainly, in Galatians 1.19, Paul meant either James the Pillar or perhaps another James altogether. And if he meant James the Pillar, then he did not mean he was literally the brother of Jesus, as that James appears to have been the brother of John and not Jesus. So to maintain that Paul means this James was the literal brother of Jesus, you have to conclude that Paul meant a different James altogether in um, chapter 1, verse 19, than the one that he mentions soon afterwards in Galatians 2.9 as well as in 2.12. But that means whichever he is speaking of in 1.19 might not have been an apostle at all, and that that may mean that Paul is using brothers of the Lord, yet again, to distinguish apostles from other Christians and not identifying the family of Jesus. Again, it's important to understand the context about Paul's remark, because it's key here. Paul is arguing that he received all he knows about the Christian mysteries are only from direct revelations, right? And he says this to us in Galatians 1, verses 6-12, that he didn't steal any bit of it, 
by hearing the other apostles teaching it and then passing himself off as an apostle who had heard it from the Lord himself. It was crucial to argue that Paul had not even met any apostles until long after he had been preaching the gospel and initiating converts. That's why he insists not any Christian at all in Jadua had ever met him before, as he says this in 1, verses 22-23, and that he only ever met one apostle, Cephas, or i.e. Peter, or two if he means James was an apostle. And even that was only after three years of conducting his own ministry in Arabia and Damascus. He tells us this in 1, 17 through 18, then spending just two weeks in Jerusalem, then meeting no one else there for another 14 years, he tells us in 2.1. Now, whether Paul's actually lying about any of this, it's not really relevant to what Paul wants the Galatians to think and what Paul means to say here. And what he means to say is that no one in Judea ever met him. He swears, to, he swears to them most emphatically in Galatians 1.20. He admits there were only two exceptions, Peter and James, and only for a brief time, and that years after he saw the Lord personally. But in saying so, why didn't Paul just say, of them that were apostles before me in 1.17, I met none except for Peter and James in 1.18-19. Why does he construct the convoluted sentence, I consulted with Peter, but another of the apostles I did not see, except James? As El Padrunger puts it, this would certainly be an odd way for Paul to say that he only saw two apostles, Peter and James. To say that, a far simpler sentence would do fine. So why the complex sentence instead? So, it's more than likely that Paul simply means that he met only the Apostle Peter and only one other Judean Christian, a certain Brother James. By calling him Brother the Lord instead of an Apostle, Paul is thus distinguishing this James from any Apostles of the same name. Just as we saw that he used Brothers of the Lord to distinguish regular Christians from Apostles, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 9.5. This would explain his rare use of the complete phrase in only those two places. He otherwise uses the truncated brother of his fellow Christians. Yet every time he specifically distinguishes apostles from non-apostolic Christians, he uses the full title for members of the Christian congregation, brothers of the Lord. This would be especially necessary to distinguish in such contexts, brothers of the apostles, which would include kin, who were not believers, from brothers of the Lord, which also explains why he doesn't truncate the phrase precisely in those two places. Now, you might see how that would be important to Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 9.5, right? Where indeed he takes similar care in specifying that only believing wives have the right in question. He therefore must distinguish so as to exclude unbelieving brothers for the same reason. So if the James in Galatians 1.19 could likewise be mistaken for an unbelieving brother of Peter, especially by readers who did not know what the brothers Peters may have had. Paul would need to be equally specific here as well. And thus again, the complete phrase would have to be used. And it's not. 
And if that's the case, then Paul would in effect be saying, I didn't meet another of the apostles unless you count Brother James, who joined us but was not an apostle. Now, many biblical scholars, biblical, excuse me, many biblical scholars have concluded the same, that Paul meant this James was not an apostle, whether or not he was the actual brother of Jesus. So, and the fact that Paul needs to say here, he met no Christians at all, and not just apostles in Galatians 1.18, in order to sustain his claim in 1.22 that no one else in Judea had seen him, means that we should expect Paul to have named any non-apostolic Christians that he met in Galatians 1.18-19. And lo and behold, that's what he appears to do. He insists that no one else but a certain brother James. We should conclude then that Paul is doing the same thing here that he did in 1 Corinthians 9.5, using brother of the Lord as an appellation for Christians. Every time he wants to distinguish Christians generally from apostles specifically. Otherwise, as we pointed out before, Paul would need to make clear that he meant a biological brother of the Lord and not an adoptive brother of the Lord like any other Christian. So that he made no such distinction here all but entails he intended none. We should conclude the same, shouldn't we? Now, one way to look at these two passages would be to ask, what would we think if we only had Paul's authentic letters? I'm not talking about the ones with the interpolations and the second and third century um, forgeries. If that was all the evidence that we had for Christianity, would we conclude that Paul was describing with the title Brothers of the Lord as a biological relation or a cultic relation? The evidence in Paul's letters alone strongly support the existence of the cultic relation, while providing no evidence for anyone having any biological relation to the Lord whatsoever. However, you'll find that the biological interpretation is always based on outside of Paul's letters, which we have surveyed in previous chapters and found wholly unreliable. We have to conclude that there is simply no evidence in these two passages that support a historical man-Jesus, but that only of a celestial Christ living within the realms of heaven. So I guess the question at hand now is, how likely is it that Paul would use the phrase brothers of the Lord on the two occasions that he does, the one in Galatians 1.19 and the one Corinthians 9.5, in their given context as we just analyzed, and given our background knowledge that all Christians would be known as brothers of the Lord, we can conclude that on minimal mythicism and not on the side of historicity, Right? Since on historicity, we should expect far more frequent and far less ambiguous discussions of the family of Jesus, especially if, as these passages would then entail, they were playing a major leadership role in the church at the time. We find the silence of Paul everywhere else, and his extreme ambiguity in these two passages is way less likely on historicity, but fully supports a mythical Jesus, a cosmic Christ. On everything that we just surveyed through the epistles and the Pauline letters, the ideas of celestial gods living and dying and even being buried in outer space wasn't that far-fetched at all. In fact, it was quite common in Jewish mythology. 
take a look at the next little section that we're going to talk about, which is Adam's burial in outer space. And this is also by Dr. Richard Carrier. In his book, On the Historicity of Jesus, which I have been really trying to encourage you guys to go out and buy, Dr. Richard Carrier cites the revelation of Moses, establishing not only that Jewish lore held that the Garden of Eden was located somewhere in outer space, roughly in the vicinity of, if not in fact on Venus or perhaps even the sun, depending on which geocentric scheme that they adopted, but that Adam himself was buried there, as well as Eve and their kids. Establishing burials in space were a well-conceived notion at the time in antiquity. However, Revelation of Moses can refer to several texts, and the one that he is referring to is also more commonly known as the life of Adam and Eve. And some people dispute this reading of the text, but this article provides particular guidance for us. In the book On the Historicity of Jesus, Dr. Richard Carrier provides several collections of background information with extensive citations of evidence as well as the scholarship to support it. Because a lot of people don't seem to know basic things about it. For example, the actual context and worldview of the ancient societies that are in question here. This includes the fact that unlike today, no one then believed heaven was another plane of existence with no physical location in our universe. And to the contrary, when they said or even thought about heaven, they meant what we mean by outer space, a place that you could physically see from Earth and actually visit it if you had a mode of transportation. Now, people then generally were geocentrists, and a spherical Earth was commonly believed by most among the educated. That fact had then been proved by multiple lines of sound scientific evidence. But even people who still insisted the Earth was flat, or a, you know, a flat disk, they shared the same cosmological belief, as did the spherical unbelievers, that the heavens physically surrounded the Earth in several different layers of concentric spheres, each filled with its own version of objects, places, gardens and castles, and even living beings. Satan and his minions as well resided there. They did not believe in an extraterrestrial vacuum. But even we didn't until, what, the 19th century? Up until then, we were still maintaining space was filled with a mysterious gas called ether, which was essentially exactly what ancient people believed as well. And they believed it was at least possible that you could breathe that air as well just like they could on Earth. So if you showed them a telescope, they would tell you you could use it to spy on angels in heaven. And if you had a, an adequate rocket or a spaceship or something like that, they would tell you you could use it to go visit angels and dead relatives in heaven as well. They could even give you a reasonable estimate of how many miles away the various heavens were, each layer. So, because heaven was like this physical place in the universe that you could see from Earth and physically visit it if you had the means of flying, is something people forget the significance of today. Because even fundamentalist Christians no longer believe this with good reason. Because, why? Science has resoundingly refuted it. We can tell. We can see it. But if you read ancient texts with the modern view in mind of heaven being somewhere else in another dimension of existence neither visible nor reachable from Earth, you will completely misinterpret what ancient texts are saying, 
only if you accept that they were instead talking about outer space will you get the right ideas of what they were trying to express. And this includes the specific structure of the universe as they understood it. Not only were the heavens in outer space, they were in fact outer space, but they aligned themselves with the planets. This is the way they thought about it. This was their cosmology, right? The lowest sphere of heaven, which was often called instead the firmament, occupied or even held up by air rather than ether, and it was capped off by the moon. Then the next level was typically called first heaven, which was capped by Mercury. Then the next, but the second heaven, by Venus, then the sun, then Mars, then Jupiter, Saturn, and then finally the seventh heaven would be the stars, ethereal. Ethereal is what it was called. Heaven and the one aerial firmament. The capstone was typically the occupying and signifying local, so the stars were associated location of the seventh heaven. While for the third heaven, that would be, obviously going back, that would be the sun. All this means is that a garden located in the third heaven could very well have meant literally a garden associated or located on the sun. Although that wasn't the only location manageable, all manner of things not visible from earth could absolutely float within any heavenly sphere. It's just the most prominent. Although some geocentric schemes swapped the position of the sun and even Venus, making Venus the signifying locale of the third heaven. And it's hard to ascertain which scheme Jewish cosmologists adopted. But in this different case, Eden could very well be on Venus, the morning star. With that said, this meant that there were things in heaven. The Testament of Abraham, for example, says Abraham was shown structures in heaven, including gates and roads, thrones, halls, tables, linens and books, and with ink and quill, and so on and so forth, as well as apparently a resurrected Adam and Abel, observing and judging the souls of the dead. And in fact, the revelation of Moses says that Adam was buried in paradise, literally up in outer space, in the third heaven, completely with celestial linen and oils. For that matter, human corpse could be buried in the heavens, not on the earth, because there was obviously soil up there in paradise. There was grass, mountains, dirt. In fact, not only is all manner of celestial vegetation planted in it, but when Adam is buried in it, he is buried in the same place from which God took the clay of which Adam was made. In many other Jewish apocrypha, there are accounts of all manners of solid structures in all other levels of heaven. So tombs and graves obviously can exist there as well. And what does this mean? According to the revelation of Moses, Adam is cast down from paradise, residing on earth below for the remainder of his life. But in death, his body is carried back up into the heavens for burial. Abel is likewise buried there as well. And later on, so is Eve and many others among the righteous dead. This also means the original tree of life that we read about in the Bible, is also located in outer space, being in the very paradise in which is located in the third heaven, or Venus, mind you, which is the true temple and altar of God located in outer space. 
Now, if you recall, since we were just talking about Paul so much, but Paul and all early Christians also believed this. Paul himself says paradise, the Garden of Eden itself, it's located in the third heaven, and that he or someone he knew had actually visited there. So if burials and gardens could exist in the third heaven, they could also exist in the firmament, the vast aerial space between earth and the moon, where we also were told in several sources there are copies of everything on earth as there are in every level of heaven, all seven levels, such that at each level their copies become more and more pure and more and more perfect, all the way up until you get to the stars to where, where, where God is, right? These same sources also show that mortal humans could actually teleport or fly up into these realms, whether by their own magical powers like Simon Magus or Apollonius or Tiana, or carried by angels or demons or other creatures or vehicles, as in the legends where Isaiah and Elijah, likewise Icarus and many of these other types of um, mythological characters. So we have this ancient text, and it's referred to as the life of Adam and Eve. And in this legendary text, surviving in many forms, typically dated to the early first century. So pretty much consistent with that time of um, the Pauline letters, the Hebrews, the epistles, all written right out around that 40s, 50s of the common era. But this, but this legendary text tells the tale of how Adam and Eve lived and died after being cast down from paradise in the third heaven, all the way down to earth below, to live out their days in misery and struggle, of course. And in the last section of these texts, they're occupied with the story of Adam's slow death and subsequent funeral and fate. It ends relating that the rest of his family were then taken up by angels and buried with him upon their own respective deaths. And it is this death of Adam and what happens after that we find the most interesting here. And here we shall translate from the Greek text, which is the earliest versions that we have. And we're also going to consult along with the Nib edition, adapting the 1855 translation of Robert Donaldson in Cleveland, or the latest edition by the Scriptural Research Institute, whichever I'm going to confirm to be more accurate, and I'll comment when our translations will differ in any per pertinent way. So the story goes, after Eve mourns the corpse of Adam upon earth, an angel comes to her and tells her, Behold, Adam thy husband has gone forth from his body. Arise and see his spirit carried up to him that made him to meet him. Which Eve then watches it happen. And then Adam's soul is with God, which we know any Jewish reader would understand to mean in the highest the seventh heaven, the residence of God Almighty. At this point, Adam's body is still lying on earth, being mourned by the angels and family alike, and then is taken to a lake to be washed, during which moment God sings a lament over Adam's body. Okay, okay, really, okay? So after that, God then stretched forth his hands and raised Adam, handing him over to the archangel, Michael, telling him, raise him into paradise, unto the third heaven, and leave him there until judgment day. 
And then Michael spreads his wings and then takes Adam's body. He anoints it first, and he summons more angels and carries out the instructions that God had given him. So it's indisputable that this is Adam's corpse being taken physically up to the third heaven after his soul has already been taken up in the earlier passage. So now we understand that after God tells Michael to go get the body, and Michael, the archangel, then anoints it, then all the angels are summoned again to pay its last respects as it lay on earth. The word is uh, tege in Greek, T-E-G-E, -E, and I'm not sure what the little sound pronunciations are, but a can mean either earth or on the ground. Either way, that is the Greek meaning of earth or literally on the ground, laying on the dirt. But in context here, we can take it as indicating the former. Before they came to where the body of Adam was and took it and went to paradise, thus fulfilling God's order as to what was to be done with Adam's body. Some versions of the text even say, and the body of Adam was then lying on the ground in paradise. So there can be no doubt this is about the body of Adam. God then tells Michael to go into paradise, into the third heaven, to fetch materials for Adam's internment and bring them back to God. So basically, bring me clothes of fine linen and silk, and from there, blah, 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 blah. So whatever God does with those materials, it's not really sin. But God then instructs Michael to use them to cover Adam's body and to prepare it for its ultimate burial. This means Michael and God are not in the third heaven when having these conversations, right? So we are seeing a scene after God has put humanity to sleep, and Adam's body has then been deposited into the third heaven and his previous instructions. God now sends Michael back down to bring him the materials, and then sends Michael back down again to lay them on Adam. None of this is happening on earth. Now, to the contrary, after the preserved corpse of Abel is brought up to be buried next to Adam, both are to be buried according to God's command in the part of paradise where God found the dust in which he made Adam originally, if you remember in Genesis, which means the original paradise Adam came from. And here it says the angels had to take them up. This is clearly indicating this paradise is above the earth. And so as to where they took them, the exact phrase is, and I have to give you a bunch of Greek here, but it's, um, it's, is ta meri tau peridaso is tan tapan. So in this, I'm sure I butchered it, but in this context, it's meaning in the part of the paradise, the place where the dirt Adam came from was found. As with many generic phrases like this, the context determines meaning. For example, elsewhere, the EIS, the Ice Ta Mirateau Paradiso, means instead an area near paradise. So the God who is still commanding from above, from the celestial 
um, heaven in what level seven, <laughs> then orders for more angels to go down to paradise to collect herbs for the burial and laid them into the ground. And thus they took the two bodies and buried them in the place that they had dug out and built up. So that's an actual tomb is what is indicated here. So when God puts a three cornered seal on it to prevent the bodies from being disturbed. So again, the phrase entaga in Greek and like phrases can mean both on the earth as well as in the ground. So for example, when still in paradise before Adam's fall, Adam bends to forbidden trees bow down to the ground so Eve can pick its fruit. And then when already on earth, Eve falls to the ground in respect. So obviously in these sentences, the phrase does not mean to the earth, but to the ground. So again, the context determines its meaning here. And here, when speaking of digging Adam's grave, where the original soil Adam was formed from, in such context, it's clear that they are talking about soil, not earth below. So paradise is never located on earth at all, not even in the original Greek text in the life of Adam and Eve. So there is no basis for ever reading that into any sentence like this. And then so it goes on. So God then is conversing with Adam's corpse, literally his dead body, as it rests in the ground and promises him his future resurrection. So it's clear that the text here means ground again, because Adam was just buried in the ground in paradise. And then what God says to Adam now is from dust, and he uses the Greek word ge, G-E, you are, to dust, G-E, you go, using the same words both times. So dust to dust, you go, using the same words. So he is talking about what Adam was made of and where he will be reduced to, dust back to dust or dirt back to dirt, right? This is then made clear again when the text mentions Eve did not know where Adam was buried because God put all of humanity to sleep during that event. So when the Lord came to paradise to bury Adam, Eve too was also put to sleep. She was also knocked out. And again, Adam is buried in paradise. No mention of it ever being on earth. Instead, we've already been told twice now where it is. It's in the third heaven. Now, because of God's magical sleep spell, no one on the earth knew the grave's location. That same phrase again, but the context this time indicates it means the earth as a specific location and not dirt as a particular type of material, as we talked about before with dirt, dust, or ground. But this still, there's no mention is made of paradise being there. As the rest of the text makes it unmistakably clear, Adam was definitely buried in paradise and paradise was definitely in the third heaven, not on earth. And accordingly, the text never says it was. Paul the Apostle likewise says paradise was in the third heaven. So we have independent cooperation of this type of early first century messianic Jewish belief. And other Jewish literature cooperates this as well, as paradise was widely believed to be above the earth somewhere in the heavens. Now, indeed, just to serve as another example, even in the traditional original text of Ezekiel 28, it appears to locate Eden in the heavens, declaring it 
on God's mountain, which can clearly be assumed as metaphor for the heavens, because Ezekiel concludes his poem with God throwing Adam down to the earth from there. So he evidently wasn't on the earth before then. So neither was paradise. Now, to nail the point conclusively, when in the life of Adam and Eve is telling her kids about how she and Adam were kicked out of heaven, she concludes her tale with the very words, after we took some stuff, we came out of paradise, and we were on earth, which means they were not on earth before then, which means paradise they left was not on earth. So where was it? Well, the text twice tells us in the third heaven. There really isn't any other logical way to get around this. So in conclusion of this tale, the takeaway here is that first century Christians, even those who coexisted in the times of Paul and the writer of Hebrews and the epistles, the first sectarian groups of Christianity, believed that Adam and Eve and their family were all buried on the third heaven. Whether it was Venus or whether it was in the sun, the third level of the celestial place. And this is where we can even imagine that the trials that Jesus went through, that his death and his resurrection all took place also within the third layer of the heavens. So I think that this is a good place to start winding this down. I think we looked at a lot of evidence. Um, we looked at all of the arguments throughout the Pauline letters and as well as Hebrews in the previous chapters. And um, yeah, so I think it's clear to understand that early first century Christians imagined a lot of this going on in outer space is the way that we would see today if we were talking to a first century Christian right now, is that what they would explain to us of their heaven is what we would understand and interpret as our outer space. And so it's quite clear to picture, especially when you talk about the author of the Ascension of Isaiah, this is pretty common. It wasn't until the late first century that they, this historicizing sect started building stories and places and families around Jesus Christ. But before then, it was absolutely consistent with what we've been examining in this particular episode. So again, I hope you all enjoyed, and I hope you all pass this along to friends if you think they'd enjoy it too. And I know this one was probably a little bit harder to get through just because it was so verse, um, you know, weighed down with like going through scripture. But I think it's all real important stuff, especially when you really want to understand and you really want to know what these authors were trying to write. So with that said, guys, I hope you have a fantastic week. And if nothing else, be great humans and take care of each other.